Uh, okay, so, <laughs> fine. In the 1800s, um, there was an understanding that the Bible was the oldest sort of Middle Eastern Mesopotamian document. Uh, and in an attempt to further establish that, there was a lot of archaeology that went on um, done by people of faith uh, in the sort of region we'd call Babylon. And they actually came, came upon something kind of interesting. They came upon these cuneiform tablets that had some stories that we didn't know. Uh, and some of them were actually really quite old. And the most important story that they came across was something that we called the Enuma Elish. Okay? And the Enuma Elish is the Babylonian story of creation. I actually have a picture of the tablet just so you can see this is one of many that they found. Um, that had the Enuma Elish on it. They actually found copies of these tablets with more or less the same story. And I think it was four or five different um, archaeological digs in, in different ancient cities of what we would call Mesopotamia. And this story, um, these, these tablets are about 1,200 years before Jesus, right, is when they were written, so 1,200 B.C. But the general consensus by most scholars is that those aren't the original copies, of course, and that the story itself probably was written somewhere around 1750 B.C. 1750 B.C., so 1,750 years before Christ. That's really interesting because that would be 300 years before Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Moses, um, the traditional author of the Torah, right, the books of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So, 300 years before Moses wrote Genesis, this story of the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, was already famous, right? It was already widespread. People knew it. Why does this matter? Uh, it matters because when Moses writes Genesis chapter 1, he's not doing it in a vacuum. Um, Moses is having a conversation with everybody else about the way the world was made, because they all think, well, it probably happened in this general way. And Moses is going to say, no, you got a lot of stuff wrong. So I have found that knowing a little bit about the Enuma Elish is so helpful for me. It's like, it's like having read the Odyssey before you read the Aeneid, right? Or it's like knowing some of the history of how the Packers have crushed the Vikings over and over and over again so that you get ready for this game today, right? That history informs um, your present, right? So the, the history of what the world thought about the creation story, the Enuma Elish, informs our understanding of Genesis because Moses is having a conversation. So I want to tell you a little bit about that story because it's a really interesting and super weird story. Um, so here's how it begins. Uh, when the heavens above did not exist and the earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order their begetter, and Demiurge Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before Meadowland had coalesced and reed bed was to be found. When not one of the gods had been formed or come into being, the gods were created within them. Uh, actually, there's seven tablets, so it's pretty long. I'm going to sum up, okay? But I want you to notice the story begins the same way our story begins, right? Before the heavens and the earth are created, what is there? There's water, right? There's water everywhere. Uh, and, and that water um, for the Babylonians is the two gods, the god of fresh water, Apsu, and the god of salt water, Tiamat. 
okay? Now, kind of like some of our Greco-Roman stories, um, the, the development is pretty dark. So, Tiamat and, Epsu, and Apsu, the gods of water, have children together. Um, those children are the first set of gods. And Apsu comes to Tiamat one day and he says, our kids are really annoying me. I think we should kill them, okay? Um, I, I think this is probably written by a, a, a parent of like, like, like a, a husband whose wife just had twins or something, right? And he can't sleep. And so um, he's, that, that, I don't really think you should kill your babies. I was trying to be funny, but okay. Um, that's fine. I'll, I'll keep trying. So uh, he's, I, I can't handle the noise. We need to kill our kids. Okay, that's, that's absolute. Tiamat says, ah, I'm not sure it's a great idea. I mean, they are obnoxious, but killing them might be a bridge too far. But Apsu's like, no, we're going to do it. So he goes off and he makes his plan to murder his children. And the children hear about it, and they naturally decide to kill him first. So the kids kill dad, and um, then mom, Tiamat, gets angry, and she says, well, I mean, maybe we should have killed you. So she finds one of her kids, Kingu, who she marries, becomes her new husband. They have some monsters, like literal monsters, not like little monsters. Uh, and then they go to war with the gods. And the, the first generation of gods is not strong enough to beat Tiamat and her monsters. But, but the third generation, the grandson of Tiamat, is a guy named Marduk. Okay? And Marduk can beat Tiamat. And so he comes and he makes her swallow a whirlwind, like, like a tornado or something. And she's like bloated. And then he shoots her with an arrow. It's pretty gross. And he splits her in half. Okay? Then he takes her dead body... And he takes half of her dead body and he uses it to make the sky. Up to this point, there's only water. Okay? He uses it to make the sky. He takes the other half of her dead body, uses it to make the dry land. Then he goes and he kills um, the, her second husband, Kingu. And from Kingu's blood, he makes humans. Okay? And that's the creation story. So, happy times. That's all I have to say today. <laughs> Go forth and prosper. Um, now, striking, isn't it? I mean, how weird and dark and violent and messy that story is. So, you got to understand, this is what everybody thought when they thought about creation. I mean, everybody at the time when Moses is writing thinks that's what's normal. And by the way, there's been all kinds of really interesting research about this. Um, it's not just um, this Mesopotamian culture. So, most cultures had a myth very similar to this. For example, the Canaanites. Remember when, remember when Israel comes to the promised land, there's people living there already. People living there are the Canaanites, right? And, and the Canaanites had a god named Baal, their main god. And, and the main villain in their story is Yom, which means sea. And Baal is conquered by the sea. Remember, Tiamat is the sea, right? He's conquered by the sea. He has to defeat the ocean, and then after that, he can create the world. So this, this story is a really common one. And so it's really striking to me that when Moses sits down um, with the Holy Spirit and says, what do we need to know as, as the people of God uh, about who God is and who we are? When Moses sits down and he says, what, what do we need to help people understand as they begin this journey with this God, right? I mean, what, what's the very first thing we should write about? Let's write about, let's write about what happened in the beginning. Um, but our story is going to be really different. See, what should have happened is he should have said, well, I mean, we don't believe in Marduk, and we don't believe in Baal. It was Yahweh, right? Yahweh killed the sea monster, and Yahweh made the heavens and the earth from its dead body. But that's not our story, right? Our story is really profoundly different. Uh, so, I think in every one of those differences, we get a key insight about who God is 
and who we are, right? Who God is and who we are. By the way, John Calvin, you know this, begins his most famous book by saying, true and certain knowledge consists in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Which comes first, I'm not sure. Um, So, Scripture begins helping us know God, helping us know ourselves. Uh, So, I just want to point out a couple of things, big ideas about God, then we're going to go through Genesis a little bit and and, and unpack them. Uh, The first is, in all the other stories about creation, and whether you're Babylonian or whether you're Canaanite or whatever, um, there is another evil force that the good God has to defeat to make creation happen, right? All of these stories have that same pattern, whether it's Yom or Tiamat or whoever it might be. But in our story, there's just one God at the beginning. It's really interesting, right? There's just one God at the beginning. The, it's not that there's no spiritual warfare in the Bible. There's a lot of that. We're going to get to that later, okay? Um, but in Genesis, God doesn't conquer the sea any more than a potter conquers his clay, God simply speaks and commands because God alone is unrivaled, right? He is the originator of all things. There's nobody else competing um, with God for authority and power in God's world. At at the beginning, there's just Him and what He makes. By the way, um, because God is unrivaled and unequaled in the beginning, um, everything that God makes starts off good, right? And you heard that repetition, I hope, right? Every time we heard about God made the light and God saw it was good, and God made the dry land and saw it was good, and God made the vegetation and saw it was good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, most cultures believe that, you know, in the world, uh, some, there's some good and there's some bad, and it's all mixed together, and some good people and some bad people. Um, but the Bible begins by saying, no, when God started, there's only good. It's not that some things are good and some things are bad. Not that some people are good and some people are bad. In the beginning, everything's good. It's also really interesting how God makes the world, because every other creation story, God makes the world with violence. Every other creation story, God kills something, and from that, often from that carcass makes, but, but here, God just speaks it. There's no violence involved in God's creation, just speech. Uh, and then God brings, um, I guess we'd call order and life to the, the watery chaos. So, we're going to play with those ideas for a minute. Um, let, me, let me do this. I've got a… Yeah, perfect. Leave that up for a second. Okay. So, part of the challenge for us as we read Genesis is that we do not think about Genesis the way the people of Moses' time did, right? So, again, they're thinking about the Enuma Elish. They're thinking about these watery gods that fought each other and, and whatever. Um, when, when Moses begins to change the story, he keeps some parts of it. One of the parts he keeps is that in the beginning, there's just water. So when we think about in the beginning, we think of like the Big Bang, and I'm all for the Big Bang, right? I I believe in the Big Bang. I don't think Moses is trying to give us a science lesson here. Um, But but when we think, we think of empty space, right? We think empty space. But when Moses and every ancient author thought about the beginning, they thought about water, water everywhere. So on day one, God makes the light. On day two, God makes the rakia, the dome, okay? And what does the dome do? It separates the waters above from the waters below. So look, this is a picture of the way the Israelites thought about the world, right? And at the very top is water, right? Where you would think of empty space, they thought of water, okay? And then you have um, the dome. Oh, you see this thing's called floodgates? 
We're going to come back to those in Genesis chapter 6 when we get to Noah, okay? Um, and then below the dome, we see the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? This is the heavens, right? And then we see the earth, and then we see the water, and then there's um, the abyss, or Genesis calls it the great deep, right? This is kind of how they, they saw the world. Uh, and what's important about this is um, that when God comes in, there's just water, right? There's just chaos, just emptiness. In fact, um, in the Hebrew, that second verse of chapter 1 says, um, it, you know, the first verse says, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and the earth was, um, our thing says a formless void. But in Hebrew it says, the earth was tohu and bohu. Ooh, that's just fun to say. Say tohu and bohu. All right, that's what you're going to remember, tohu and bohu. So um, the, the earth was tohu, it was, it was chaos, right? It was without form, without structure. And it was bohu, it was empty, there was nobody there, okay? And so what does God do? He starts fixing those two things. He starts giving it form and giving it life. Um, so actually, will you go to my next, I got another picture. Um, one more. There you go, fantastic. Leave that up for a few minutes. Okay, so I, I hope you notice this pattern in Genesis. So um, the first three days, God creates stuff. And then the next three days, God fills that stuff up, okay? So the first three days, God is fixing the problem of tohu, of, of formlessness. And the next three days, God's fixing the problem of bohu, of emptiness, all right? So, for example, day one, he makes light. Day four, he fills up the light with the sun, the moon, and the stars, right? Things that make light. Uh, day two, God makes that dome that separates the waters. So there's now a sky and there's, and there's water. And in day five, God fills the sky with birds and the water with fish. Ooh, and sea monsters. We'll talk about sea monsters later. Okay, another whole sermon about sea monsters. Uh, uh, and then day three, God makes the dry land and the vegetation. And then in day six, God fills up the dry land with animals and people and makes the vegetation start making fruit. Are, are we together? You see the very intentional pattern. Um, one of the reasons I think it's so important we read this whole chapter when we talk about it is because there's such great uh, intentionality in the way it's written. I mean, it's, it's really kind of brilliant. Uh, so, what, what God does is He says, hey, um, everything's tohu, I'm going to give it form. Everything's bohu, I'm going to fill it up. Um, and those two things are, are, are really, you know, God's design in, in the world. He wants order and He wants life, okay? And so, He's going to make order and He's going to make life. Are we together on tohu and bohu? All right, you can make that go away. Thank you. Um, all right. So, God does all this amazing stuff, right? I mean, He makes the light and He makes the sky and he, all this stuff. Um, and then the very last day, he makes humans. And, and as you read the story, it's abundantly clear that something different is happening when God starts making the humans. Because we're told that God makes us in his image and according to his likeness. So even before we get, unpack that a little bit, let's just say this. Everybody at the time of Moses believed that humans were a cosmic afterthought made from the blood of a dead, rebellious God who was on the losing side of a God war um, so that the gods could have some servants. By the way, just as um, Tiamat and Apsu got annoyed with their kids because they were too noisy and wanted to kill the, the gods, uh, later on in the story, the gods will get annoyed with the humans they made and want to kill the humans. Because um, they're smelly and noisy. Again, I think this is about little kids. I don't know. Anyway, it's fine. Um, so, our story is different. 
Our story says, hey, humans aren't a cosmic afterthought for divine cheap labor. They are the crowning achievement of God's perfectly designed master plan. They're the crowning achievement of God's perfectly designed master plan. So, we're told in Genesis that we are in God's image and in God's likeness. And what that means is that unlike everything else that God has made, we uniquely reflect who God is to the rest of His creation, right? We're His image. We're like little statues of God running around. Um, And that idea is unparalleled throughout any of the ancient literature. Nobody at this time thought that there was a God who unilaterally made the world, made it good, made it with purpose, and then was like, the best thing I'm going to make is people because I really love people, and I'm going to treasure them, and they're going to be like little me's running around. This is, a, this is a wild, crazy idea that Moses and the Holy Spirit have. Uh, and then, I don't know if you noticed this, but and then we get a commandment from God to His new little images as they're running around the earth. And we're going to unpack this. Next week, we'll talk about the second part. But today, um, I just hope you notice God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Same thing that God said actually to the fish and the, uh, and the, and the birds the day beforehand. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and in Hebrew, it's uh, peru and revu. Peru and, say, say peru and revu. You guys are like Hebrew experts. I can't believe how much Hebrew you know. It's great. Okay, so God says, um, what I don't like about the way things were when He started is tohu and bohu. I don't like that it's orderless and it's empty. I'm going to fill it up with order in life. And then God says, I'm going to make humans as the best thing that I make. They're going to be like little me's, and I'm going to give them this job. They're going to peru and revu. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. Now, yes, absolutely. Uh, in, in mind here is the idea of like having biological kids. Sure. Um, but that's not all that peru and revu mean. Um, being fruitful and multiply here means... Um, As images of God, we should be about the things that God is about. We should be doing the things God's doing, doing them the way that God's doing them, right? So we should be about the work of bringing order and life into the world in all kinds of ways, and we should do it the ways that God does it, right? Not with mighty armies slaying monsters and using their dead bodies for the heavens, um, but, but without violence, right? With this peace, with the work of, of spreading the word, of speaking life and hope into people. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have more life than you had before. Jesus didn't have any biological children, but he fulfilled the commandment to Peru and Revu because he brought more life and more order into the world. Uh, in our world today, we still see plenty of tohu and bohu. We still see plenty of places um, where things aren't done. And by the way, this was true in day six, right? On on day six, they said, hey, you know what? Yes, yes, absolutely everything I've made is good. In fact, God calls it very good. But He says, I'm not done. That's why I made you humans, right? I want you to keep up the work of bringing order and life to the world. Uh, And today we see Tohu and Bohu all the time. We see all kinds of places where darkness and emptiness and lifelessness seems to reign. And the job of the people of God is to say, hey, um, to that person who feels overwhelmingly alone, I'm going to show up and 
I'm going to be fruitful and multiply, right? I'm going to, I'm going to bring Peru and Revu. I'm going to share love and grace with them. To that person um, who is mourning the loss of someone in their life, a broken relationship or a lost loved one who's died, I'm going to bring life and order with my words, with, with the peace of Christ. And when I see someone who doesn't know the story and the love of Jesus, I'm going to peru and revu, right? I'm going to show up and bring order and life so that I can be in the image of God. That's what it means to be little gods on the earth. That's what it means to be in the likeness of God. So, uh, a month ago, I was in Montreat. I've talked about Montreat a lot. I was in Montreat, and I was sitting um, on the shore of Lake Susan and thinking about how amazing God was. And I actually have a picture of that. Just throw that first picture. Okay, it's kind of dark. I hope you can see that. But um, I'm sitting on the lake. There's this beautiful lake. There's a dam across from me. And you can see, I hope you can see the mountain, um, beautiful forest, the incredible sky. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, like, God, you are amazing. And, and just sitting here, looking at your creation, it's so easy to think about how great and good you are. And, and um, sometimes in those moments, it's not that I hear an audible voice of God, but I sort of get a leading of the Spirit. I got a leading of the Spirit in that moment. And, and what the Spirit said to me was, um, Jim, you're, you're missing the best thing. What do you mean I'm missing the best thing? I mean, I just told you how great you are and how beautiful everything is. He said, no, no, you're missing the best thing. I said, okay, all right. Well, maybe, you know, maybe the best thing, uh, I need to look at the sky and the beauty of your creation, and I need to look at... Uh, no, you're missing the best thing. So do me a favor. Will you go to the next picture? This is just that same picture I zoomed in a little bit. Can you see anything in this picture? Um, anything extra in this picture? It's kind of hard to tell. Z zoom in one more time. Okay. Now can you see anything in this picture? People. I thought someone was going to say the dog. It's not the dog. Um, yeah. Right. I got one more picture of... There's actually three people on this bridge. There's another one right there. Um, and, and God said, Jim... If you stare at the mountains and this beautiful lake and the skies and the clouds and the sun and the trees and the forests, and that takes your breath away and that makes you think of me, you are missing the main idea. All of those are really little to me. You know what I made so that you could see how great and glorious and majestic and powerful and awesome and gracious and good I am? I, I made people. I made people. When I see people, that's what I should think of, right? When I see people, I should think, holy moly, look how amazing God is. Uh, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, um, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. I love that. Uh, the, the American experiment, the Roman Empire, uh, Western civilization are mortal. Their life is to yours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, I think when God begins to tell His story, what he wants us to know first is this, that you were made, along with everything else that is, with care and intentionality by a God who isn't like anything or anyone you've ever met. And yet, everything you've ever seen 
and especially everyone you've ever met is somehow a reflection of that God when they are at their best. And your job is to be like that God who is completely unlike everything our culture and everything our world has ever imagined. Your job is to be like that God who is unrivaled and unequaled, who with peace and with words and with grace adds order and life to the world. Your job is to peru and revu every time you see tohu and bohu. And the great invitation is that this God of order and life, of nonviolence and power, the unrivaled and uncreated, made you and invites you into His work, that you get to keep filling up the world with order and life so that you will look more and more like the image of that God. That's how our story begins. It's an invitation to go act like God. Let's do that this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing.